I want you to turn with me this morning to the book of Psalm, and I'm going to read most of Psalm 63. I do have put, I have asked them to put the scriptures on PowerPoint today because I have a lot of scripture. This message I have been percolating on in my own soul for quite a while. Uh, it has challenged me as I began to study this and I began to uh, work through these scriptures. So this morning, I want you to receive it. Uh, I am a fellow pilgrim. We are learning and advancing together. Psalm 63. In this scripture, we have a picture of David's passionate pursuit of God. And this morning, I want to challenge you to a passionate pursuit after God. Oh God, I'm reading from the old King James translation because that's the one they say Apostle Paul used, right? Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee. In a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. This is one of my favorite psalms because as I read it, I can see, I can hear in it the heart of David after God. Uh, could you just bring me a Kleenex, Pastor Matt, Nick, please? I uh, uh, have a tiny touch of allergies. And uh, just in case we have a little explosion, so. Anyway, thank you very kindly. So, passion, passionate pursuit of God. I so appreciated the songs, uh, uh, Brother Steve, that one about back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. And the reason that we're here today, yes, fellowship is important, but ultimately it's all about him. And once we come to Jesus Christ and submit our life to him as our Lord and Savior, we abandon our rights and everything in our living is for one reason, and that is for Jesus Christ. That's the main difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A non-Christian a person who has never come to Christ has one reason to live, and that is their own selfishness. 
Once we come to Jesus, we have one reason to live, and that is for Jesus. Like so many of the songs said this morning, it's all for him. Passion. Passionate pursuit. What is passion? Passion is desire. And desire is revealed by what we chase. I can soon detect what you are passionate about by what you chase, by what you seek after, by what you is most important to you. It doesn't take five minutes of talking to someone and you discover what is really important in their life. For some, it's their motorcycle. For some, it's their bank account. For some, it's their grandkids or their kids. And that's, these all have their place. They all are important. But when it comes to pursuing after God, passion is determined by desire, and desire is revealed by what we chase. Uh, quite a few years ago, I was in what is now Germany, at that time was East Germany. And I had a translator. I don't speak any Deutsch. And so I was totally dependent upon this young lady. But she had just become engaged about three days or a week before I got there. And so she was translating for me. Are we being filmed? Uh, can I leave the pulpit is what I'm saying. Can I go down there? It's safe. Okay. So anyway, I just want to use an example of somebody on the front seat. Uh, so uh, uh, anyway, this young lady would sit beside her fiancé. No, that wouldn't be the right word. She, she was entangled in her fiancé on the front seat. Uh, and uh, she was, you know, kind of in her own, they were in their own little world until it came time for her to translate me. And then, uh, just so I don't start a t scandal, I'll just take your hand. And, and then it came time to her to translate, and he would lean forward, and they touched fingers to the very last moment, gazing deeply into each other's eyes till the tips of their fingers released. And then she could stand beside me and translate. I had the misfortune to stay with her because she was the only person who could speak English in that particular area. And uh, I say misfortune because it didn't matter what we started to talk about. You know, everything, anything, the weather. It every conversation ended up with that young man. His amazing muscles and his gorgeous eyes and his curly locks and... And frankly, after a week, I was exhausted. And besides, I didn't think he was up to much. But, you know, she was so passionate for that young man. He was the center of her world. Nobody had to ask her to talk about him. Nobody had to tell her, you know, to think about him. It was so spontaneous because he was the passion of her life. And I believe that we need to invite the Lord to become the passion of our life. And we need to pursue 
that type of a passion where nobody needs to talk to us about talking about Jesus or loving Jesus or praying or reading his word. It is such a spontaneous hunger of our heart. We can find through the scriptures, and I'm just going to quote these three quickly. Jeremiah 29, 13. You shall seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. Two-minute prayers don't cut it, folks. It's seeking after him with all of our heart. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And in David's psalm, he's talking about being so hungry and thirsty after God to know him and to know his power. Philippians chapter 3, Apostle Paul exhibits his passion in verse 8, in which he says, Yes, certainly, and I count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them nothing but refuse that I may win Christ. And then verse 10, listen to Paul's heart, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering becoming conformed to his death. That shows me a man to whom nothing else mattered. Everything else was so secondary or thirdly or Fourthly, compared to following Christ, to knowing Christ. I want you to become so hungry for God. Are you hungry for God? Like those songs, one of those songs said, we're at the edge of something new. A hunger for more of God. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, we see a change. We see a tragedy. As Jesus speaks in the churches of Revelation, you know, for some it might be startling to read these words and hear it from the lips of the loving Lord Jesus. Because sometimes we make Jesus as this sort of, oh, just come to me and everything's going to be sweet and huggy and everything's just fine. And, and Jesus does love you. But love without justice is sloppy. And justice without love is cruel. My friends, in these scriptures, listen to what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2. No, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. I'll read it from the King James. Revelation 2 and verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. 
because thou hast left thy first love. Jesus said in at least five of the seven churches, he spoke to the church and he said, I have something against you. Isn't that something? Isn't that rather shocking? And I thought as I've been in various places, I wonder which church of Revelation this church fits. Would there be something of the church corporately, and what about us individually, that Jesus would have against us? That's what it said. And he said, this is what I have against you. You have left your first love. Now, I've never been married, but <laughs> I've got this amazing imagination. <laughs> and I imagine that in a marriage, yesterday I heard lots of good advice about marriage, but I, I think that communication is really important and, and working at that relationship. Velma, and, and Velma said to me one day, she said, you know, marriage is wonderful, but it's a lot of work. And none of this 50-50. Don't ever think it. It's 100%, 100%. How many married folks could agree? Please lift your hand. Wow, that's great. It's hard work because there is a continual coming back to establishing relationship. Yes, the covenant of marriage, the covenant in front of God has been established, but now there is a building of relationship that has to take place. I heard this story. Some of you old enough to remember days before seatbelts. Anybody remember that, the good old days? Before 1972, I was hardly born, but I remember when... You know, in those days, the bench seat in the front of those old cars, they, you knew who was going with who by where they were sitting. You know, for those young'uns here, those that were going with somebody sat right squeezed up against the driver, who was the man, mostly, and, and you knew that, you know, they were a couple. They were, they were going out together. Well, there was this couple that had been married about 40 years, and they stopped at an intersection, and they saw a car go through the intersection with just married written all over the front of it. And there was this young man and his bride scrunched up behind the steering wheel or on top of the steering wheel. And, and it went through the intersection, and they carried on, and the man looked over, and his wife was crying. And what's the matter? Like you were okay 30 minutes ago. And she said, it's just not like we used to be as she steamed up her window. It's just not like it used to be. He said, well, like, like what? He was just driving away. He looked across at her. And she was just sobbing. She said, you know, it's just not like it used to be. We used to sit just like that. He said, I never moved. 
and it's many comparisons in the scripture of our relationship with the Lord in many comparisons like a marriage. And if God seems far away, who did the moving? My friends, we need to have a relationship, a fellowship, a communion, a submission to the Lord. But they had lost their first love, the passionate pursuit, the fervor, the desire had faded, and God was just a sort of a nuisance in the background, hopefully hanging along for emergencies and fire escape. In Isaiah chapter 64, and verse, we'll just read verse 7. I found this, well, well let's read this one, seeing as it's up there. Verse 6, there is no one who calls, no, that's verse seven, 6, 7, whatever. There is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us by means of our iniquities. Isaiah the prophet was moved, almost amazed, that in the crisis of the nation, as judgment was about to fall and they were about to be carried into uh, captivity, he could see destruction coming for the nation. He said, and in the middle of all this, there is no one that is stirring up himself. Put that up again. There is no one that is stirring up himself to seek after the Lord. My friends, there is a responsibility that we have to stir ourselves. A preacher can do something. Relatives and friends and community can do something to encourage us in our pursuit of God. But ultimately and finally, my friends, it is only you and I that can say, I will serve the Lord with all of my heart. I need God. Why did they lose their passion? Why did they lose their first love? How does that affect me today? And I've got three points. Pastor can add another 10 if you want someday. But I want to give you three points because I'm not noted to be short-winded. I want to give you three reasons, and maybe it will challenge you. Have you lost your desire for God? I'm not just talking about, you know, blessing your food and all that, but a desire for God, a desire to know him. Number one. Discouragement. Would you say that with me? Discouragement. Say it again. Discouragement. Out loud. One, two, three. Discouragement. It's probably one of the first reasons why people lose their passion for the Lord. We pray, pray, pray. Nothing happens. 
go to church, what's the point? Same old crew there every time. And I know some stuff on every one of them. What's the point? This COVID time for a lot of people was excruciatingly discouraging. Nothing seemed to change. Everybody was clammed up in their own houses and couldn't get out and hug, show, hug elbows. Everything was so pressured. And maybe for some of you, as you look in your heart today, would you say, I have lost my desire for God because of discouragement? The church has disappointed me. People have disappointed me. My family's disappointed me. My neighbors have disappointed me. I'm so discouraged. Like, what's the point? Discouragement. Pressure. Opposition. Ah, Just lay back. Kick back. Don't get so wired about stuff. I'm just going to cruise discouraged. I'm discouraged. You know, I'll just throw this in. Discouragement is a choice. You can choose to get over it. Uh, the amens are rather weak, but nevertheless, you can. You can change your attitude and say, get a hold of God. You can seek after God Paul said in Galatians 5 and verse 7, I'll just quote it, he said, you were running well. What hindered you? Why have you laid it aside? Number two, what is the reason why I have a forsaken passion? Why I might have cooled in my desire after God? Number two, distraction. Let's all say that. Distraction. Say it with a little punch. Distractions. Distractions. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Apostle Paul was speaking about one of the young men that traveled with him in 2 Timothy. And he, this young man had seen the miracles and heard the teaching of Apostle Paul. Imagine that. The best of the best. The anointed apostle to the Gentiles. And yet... It says after years, at the end, it says, Paul said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Somewhere along the line, this young man who had a desire to serve God and to work with Apostle Paul and to teach and to spread the gospel and was engaged in the gospel, something happened in which he was finally willing to leave it and to chase after the world. Paul said, he has forsaken me, having loved, pursued, desired this present world. Distracted? Oh my goodness, if there is any word that would sum up during these last two years, it has been distraction. Distraction. Virus. Vaccine. Vaccine. More vaccine. Virus. 
everybody's opinion, fake news and fake news and fake, fake, fake news and all of this polyrot going on until people are all in a panic, so focused on the next newscast to see, oh, what horrible thing is going to happen. Distracted. Distracted by the pleasures of this world. He, in Laodicea, the church of Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3, I see another major distraction. Listen to this. In Revelation chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16, Jesus, Jesus said to the church, I know your works. Very interesting. He said that to almost every church too. I know your works. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you are cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus said that. Jesus said that to a church. Because you are neither hot nor cold. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Isn't that shocking? And if there's a society that is, resembles very much the church of the Laodiceans who said, we're rich, we have need of nothing. Why would Jesus say such a thing? It was obviously that they loved him. They had money collected. They had deeds they were doing. Why? What Jesus said, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. What's so bad about lukewarm? I rather like it. I mean, like, really. When I have coffee, I like it just a little bit warmer than warm. I'm not one of those that likes their coffee still bubbling in the cup and burns all the innards out. Neither am I into ice coffee. Yeah, there's some that do. They leave it sitting, they play with it until there's little ice forms on the top. My friends, I like my coffee just a little bit warmer and warmer. And I know that there's some in here that take it boiling straight out of the thing. How many do that? I knew it, yeah. And when I have a shower, I like my shower just a little bit warmer than warm. Maybe a little bit more than a little bit. Warmer than warm. But I don't like it so hot that it peels off the top two layers of my hide. And I don't like cold showers that give me goosebumps big enough to hang hats on. I like a warm, warmer than warm shower. Okay, the same ones that lifted their hands before, you're probably the same ones that like the hot ones. How many like the scorching ones? Yeah, same bunch. Anyway, so, so what's so bad about warm? Like today in here, for you, it's very comfortable. For me, I'm at 155 degrees up here. But nevertheless, I like it warm. We just love it comfortable, right? I mean, not too hot. You know, 35 is supposed to be or something tomorrow. We're going to say I'll never complain about winter again. But, you know, minus 35, same thing. I'll never complain about 
feet again, so whatever. But why do we like it? What's so bad about lukewarm? Exactly. You're comfortable. No, I'm not the best Christian. I'll admit. I'm not the worst. I'm just your average comfortable Christian. Just don't get me too wired about God and stuff. Just just let me hang loose and do as little as possible to scrape through. Comfortable. Because you have no passion. We've lost our passion. I've lost passion. This thing where I stir my heart, I've got to have God. I've got to have him in my life. They were distracted by their comfort, and everything was cool. They were so comfortable. And Jesus said, because you're comfortable, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. I wish you were either frozen cold because I could do something with you. Or I wish you were flaming hot so you could do something for me. But this business of lukewarm, placid, uninvolved, God says, I would vomit you out of your, my mouth. Folks, I don't know about you, but that really hits my heart. I said, dear God, stir me up. Help me to stir myself. Number three, I just want to add under that comfort, distraction, by careless ease, apathy, selfishness, entertainment, all having their place in life perhaps. But when it comes to our pursuit of God, these are distractions. There is one way, and that is to go forward. Like uh, Stephen mentioned, Lord, help us to refocus that you are the center. Number three, why would we lose our first love? Discouragement, distractions. Number three, disobedience will steal your passion. I don't know. How it heartbreaking it would be in a marriage to find unfaithfulness in a partner. I, I, I just think that would be so crushing, so painful. One that you had loved, and now they're, they, they've been unfaithful. They're carousing around, floating around. I think that would be so painful. And for the one that's unfaithful, how in the world could it be that they could pull on such a facade and, and come home and act like everything's just okay and keep it hidden and sneaking around and having their hearts corrupted with two-faced disobedience? How is it possible? How is it possible for you 
and for me to come into the presence of God when we know we have sin in our life and we have disobeyed God. We have been unfaithful to God in our lifestyles, in our habits, and then we smoothly come into the presence of God. Oh, everything's so cool. I just love the Lord so much. Even though I know my heart is not at peace with God. Disobedience will steal your love for God. I remember years ago somebody had written in the fly, fly leaf of their Bible, this book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. Sinful lifestyles. Just because it's accepted by the government doesn't make it right in the eyes of God. The condemnation, the guilt of sin weighs the heart down and crushes the soul. And so that when we come before God, we have to come. God, I really need your help, but you know, you know, I just can kind of. No, you haven't. You made a choice to disobey God. Almighty God! And God is calling us today to a passionate pursuit of Him. The lover has gone astray. Come to him. This is not to condemn you. Can you hear the heart of God saying, Oh, that you would come to me. Oh, that you'd just move over here beside me with a true heart. Hey, it's not just the big stuff of sin. What about the unforgiveness? The bitterness? The disputing, the criticizing. You know what? I'm doing this COVID stuff. You know, I was amazed. You know, there's families that wouldn't even talk to each other. Those people wouldn't go to church anymore. I mean, what does that have to do with anything, my friend? What does that have to do with anything? It's all about Jesus. Everything else. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do, all right. But Jesus is the center. And 50 years from now, and by the looks of some of you, it'll be a lot less. The only thing that will matter is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't say that lightly, my friends. I do watch the news. COVID stuff didn't upset me very much, but I'll tell you, when I see this war starting in Europe, that's got my attention. Some of you were here when I read that prophetic word given by that uh, 1968 by that Norwegian woman that is describing in precise detail what is happening on the world stage right now. And she said the last step will be the way they treat the immigrants. My friends, we're there. I, I, I keep in touch with European news. I know what's going on. England is sending immigrants to Africa, Rwanda, in fact. They don't want them. She said that will be the last thing. 
The Third World War will break out in an unexpected place and an unexpected reason. That's where we're at. It could happen any minute. I'm not set in times. We could have another 50 years, but I think we're closer rather than later. My friends, now is the time to get your ducks in line. I find it very interesting in the book of Matthew. When Jesus described the flood, you know what he said? He said, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And I'll tell you what, we talk about a world revival. I pray so. I pray there will be a great sweeping where people will fall under conviction before God and cry out to God before it's too late. But according to Matthew, according to Matthew, Jesus said the flood came and took them all away. And then there was a revival. It was a revival. As they banged on the ark, it was a revival. It was too late. I want to end with the story of Paul. He just amazes me. What an example. I've got three scriptures in the book of Acts when Paul describes his encounter on the road to Damascus when he had a vision of Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, let's read the first encounter in verses 3 to 6. In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. And as he traveled, he got close to Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. He felt on the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and enter into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Go back to that first verse. It says, as he journeyed, I want you to notice something. As he traveled close to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around about him. He saw Jesus. He had a vision. And something about Jesus, that light of that first encounter, that vision fueled his passion for Jesus. He had seen Jesus. It was so awe-inspiring. It was he was so amazing in his glory. Paul never looked back. That the vision fueled his passion. Some of you can remember when you first encountered Jesus. Maybe there's some here who have never encountered Jesus become so hungry that till you do. That vision transformed his life and he traveled all over Europe and Asia, went three missionary journeys, did phenomenal, saw God do phenomenal things, people healed and churches established and hundreds upon maybe thousands of people turned to Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized, wonderful, amazing encounters. And then after years, he comes with offerings back to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and some people think that he's 
and he's defiled the temple somehow. And so the Jews got all in an uproar. And they were trying to sneak him away to kill him because they weren't allowed to kill people. But the Roman soldiers caught wind of somebody trying to get murdered or somebody trying to murder somebody. So they came roaring down there and they rescued Paul and they picked him up. But the Bible says the crowd was so violent that they continued to beat on him and pull at his clothes and shank his care. And even though the Roman soldiers were carrying him, This is the guy that has been in prison, he's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been all kinds of stuff. And now he says to the soldiers, let me stand on the steps here and talk to this mob. And so in Acts chapter 22 and verse 6, we have his second description of what happened that day. Facing this crowd, bloody scars, beaten, torn clothes, maybe chunks of hair missing. He turns and speaks to the crowd, and he tells the story again. And he says, As I made my journey and came close to Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light shone round about me from the sky. Stop. What did he see? He showed it. What did he see the first time? A light. The first scripture says he saw a light. But now after some 15, 20 years of being beaten and persecuted and suffering. He says it wasn't just a light. It was a great light. It was a great light. This vision of Jesus has become stronger. All of the persecution, all of the difficulty, all the disappointments, all the discouragements, all the distractions, all of the temptations has only served to ignite my passion brighter for Jesus. Some of us, somebody looks at us the wrong way. Well, I'm not going to chase my wife. You poor thing. Somebody hurts our feelings. We say, oh, it's too hard to follow Jesus. Paul, after all that suffering and preaching and traveling, he said, oh, it's not just a what I saw was a great light. This vision of Jesus had become stronger. His passion had burned more fervently. Instead of water on the fire with the persecution, it had poured gasoline on his fire of desire for God. Then in Acts chapter 26, we have the last time that he told the story. I want to read verse 12 and verse 13. We're coming for an end. And Brother Stephen, if you kind of could think about that, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know what? Acts chapter 26 and verse 12. Let me just tell the background of it. He's been in prison for two years. He's brought out every now and again to the amusement of the visiting dignitaries. 
to tell this story about a resurrected Christ that has changed his life. And now King Agrippa has come to town and they tell him to come out again to amuse them with his story. And he comes out with ball and chain on his leg. His hands are in chains. He describes the chains a little later. He said, I have these chains. He has chains clanking along as he walks. He's been in prison at least two years. He stands in front of Agrippa, blinking in the brightness of the sun he hasn't seen for maybe days. Stuck away in a corner. Maybe some of you in COVID thought that you were stuck in a corner in a prison. Paul was there for two years, clamped down with chains. Verse 12, he says, we're upon... He says to Agrippa, as I traveled to Damascus with the authority and commission from the chief priests, at noon, O king, I saw on the way a light from the sky, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those that traveled with me. Two years of prison had inflamed his passion. His vision of Jesus was not just a light, not just a great light, but now Jesus consumed him above the brightness of the sun. The trouble only made him sweeter. The temptation only made Jesus brighter. Nothing else but. Where is your passion for Jesus? What is your desire? Are you right with God? Are you ready to repent and turn to God? My friends, we're going to sing this chorus. We're going to conclude. Have you become discouraged? I challenge you to come for refreshing to the fountain of Have you been distracted? Just so much stuff. Oh, my goodness, so much stuff. Have you been disobedient? Pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that these words, it's not our ability, it's not our words that does it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that reaches into the heart and grips the heart. And I ask, Lord, that you will reach into the heart and that these people will have a hunger for you, a desire for you, where nothing else matters but pleasing you, serving you, following you, being ready when you come. Jesus, let your Holy Spirit move in my heart, my heart, that I will have a renewed, continual stirring of my heart to pursue passionately after God, after his word, after his work, after his people. Let's just bow in his presence. 
Just let the Holy Spirit speak in your heart. Just say, Jesus, talk to me. Talk in my heart. I want to give you it all. I want to give you it all. You see all of these voices that are screaming and making excuses. Lord, but I want to give it to you all. I know you do. That's why you're here today. You want to give him all. Jesus. 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 As we're just bowed in prayer, I want to quote Luke 21, 34 to 36 in the New Living Translation. It says like this. Watch out. Don't let me find you living in careless ease and drunkenness and filled with the worries of this life. Don't let me catch you unaware as in a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living upon the earth. Keep a constant watch and pray that, if possible, you may escape these horrors and stand before the Son of Man.